You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. So, Michael, we're social studies teachers, and True. people don't know that. Hello. We're this is, this might be their first episode. <laughs> exciting. Hello. Right. So, I think one thing I think about as a social studies teacher every once in a while is like when we're living through history in the present, right? And I keep thinking, like, what is the history that people are going to learn about this pandemic, right? And I, I have my most, I think, vivid memories at the beginning of the pandemic, right? right? Like, like, kind of just not... masks and... Well, not yeah, even masks kind of like in the beginning. The scary, yeah. I, early in the pandemic, I had to fly back from California and there's these pictures of us and we're just wearing gloves and no mask. And I'm just like, oh no, that's the wrong way to do it. <laughs> we're just babies. We're just yeah. babies. I knew so little about respiratory pandemics. But yeah, thinking about the experiences, right? I remember watching like, um, you know, the pandemic movies at the, at oh, the right. beginning. Yeah, no, we did I that too. Outbreak. I watched Contagion. It actually made me feel a little better because like all the people didn't like die in the movie which i think like made me feel a little better surprisingly yeah but so i I think about what are like you know are the primary sources what are the references what are the ways people are gonna to write about this and one part is i think the release and anticipation um and then for some other people hesitancy or denial of the vaccines right like that's a big part of the story yeah yeah i know in massachusetts we it was interesting, like my s- district was attempting to like get vaccines for the teachers with the idea that once they had enough, they would do them for us. And so this way we could like, um, they would do it all, like on a Friday. So if there were symptoms or, or you know, if there's uh, side effects that it would be dealt with on the weekend. Right. But then the governor changed things and uh, they weren't able to do that. And I remember... Oh, it was actually uh, President Biden said that all educators should be have access to the vaccine. And the, that night, CVS un, unleashed the, the ability for <laughs> teachers to get vaccinated. And, oh, my goodness. That was like kind of amazing. And I have this weird loyalty towards CVS, which is a really strange thing to have loyalty towards a, a corporation. It's a pharmaceutical yeah. company. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh yeah, exactly. I remember that too, because when that happened, you know, my wife and I, we were speculating and she's an educator. We were speculating when this was going to happen. It had, you know, a lot of anxiety throughout the year. And, and when they opened it up, she looked online to see what she could get. And um, her school let her off and, and her and her uh, library aid, they drove to a place I'd never heard of. Um, yep. At- Atlanta, I, Georgia, I've heard of, but I'd never heard of Atlanta, Texas, um, which is actually, you'd think I would have heard of it. It's very memorable, yeah. but they drove like to over two hours there to get uh, their vaccine. And so she was able to get it before me when I was actually in Utah, helping my, my mom like recuperate from surgery. Um, but so then I looked online, but they didn't include higher ed as quickly um, yeah. in, in the updates in Texas. So what did so you there, do? Well, there was a delay. And so, you know, I just was kind of looking, you know, I didn't want, I certainly did not want to jump in line right in front of anyone. I wanted to wait until the appropriate time. Um, and so, you know, but, and one of the biggest problems with the, the vaccine rollout is it, it's like anything else that benefits people with resources and time. Mm. Um, right. So I was able to wait and see and look for it. 
And the first time I was able to access the vaccine was because the Chickasaw Nation actually opened it to educators in the area and they included people in North Texas. Oh, And so, you know, being from Oklahoma, I'm super familiar. Well, I shouldn't say super familiar. I'm familiar with the Chickasaw Nation because they have a huge yeah. presence in the state of Oklahoma. Um, they're they're kind of like, especially in like South Central Oklahoma, they're like omnipresent. Like you see the Chickasaw Nation involved in everything. Like if you go to Oklahoma City, the the, the downtown ballpark is like sponsored by the Chickasaw Nation. Yeah. Um, and then they they uh, they're, of course, well known for the they have like the largest casino. I think it's like the largest casino in the world. I think oh, they well. claim that is is on the southern uh, border of Oklahoma. And so a lot of Texans come up to that, but it's a lot of things, health clinics, all these things you see it. So I drove up to Tishomingo, Oklahoma and went to their health clinic and was able to just drive through. I didn't even get out of my car and get, you know, the vaccine. And, and so I just felt uh, really grateful for how well they handled it. I like the, the, the native nations did an incredible job of like distributing the vaccine. And I think are the highest, like indigenous people are like the, have the highest percentage of uh, having gotten the vaccines at this point that we're wow. recording this right now. And so, and I think it really initially like boosted Oklahoma's numbers of, of the vaccine distribution. So, so yeah, so it's interesting to see how like I didn't get it from my state government, which I was still waiting on. I didn't get it from my County. I got it from a tribal nation, right. Which we've talked about indigenous issues in education quite a bit on this podcast, but I think it's something we haven't gotten into talking about specific nations very much. Right. Yeah, you're right. We've done much more generalities. If only we could get if only. Involved. Yeah. <laughs> if only we had had an outstanding student in our master's program at the University of North Texas uh, who just graduated. Congratulations. So we're talking to a recent graduate who is a member and grew up in the Chickasaw Nation and she's an educator. And so we're going to learn a little bit from her today. We'd like a welcome into the podcast. Alexis Walker. Welcome. Hello, thank you for having me on. My name is Alexis Walker. Um, like you said, I'm an educator and a member of the Chickasaw Nation tribe. Alexis, can you tell us a little bit about, about your background in both in education and, and growing up in the Chickasaw Nation? Yeah. So my education and background, I have taught three years of second grade in a really small school in Oklahoma. I graduated with my undergrad from East Central University in elementary education. And then, like you just said, I recently graduated from University of North Texas with my master's degree in curriculum instruction. While I was at North Texas, I really focused on social justice or diversity. But my main area, my main focus was on the representation of indigenous cultures in curriculum. And that came from you know, a little bit of my background being a Chickasaw citizen. So I grew up in Ada, Oklahoma, where the headquarters is located for the Chickasaw Nation. So being half Chickasaw, I was immersed in my culture from the day I was born. My grandparents, maternal and paternal grandmothers spoke Chickasaw. Actually, my maternal great-grandmother didn't speak English. She never knew English. And her daughter, which is my grandma, is one of the last fluent speakers. And so, you know, from the very beginning, the language was a very important thing to my family. So I grew up learning that along with English. <laughs> and, and then on my dad's side, you know, they were Chickasaw too. So that was something that was, we were just always around it. And my parents 
really from the time that we were children had us learning it almost every day. We went with dance troupe to different cities around the uh, country and we did tribal dances and we showed off our regalia and things like that. So for me, the culture is something that I've always known and I've always known my background. So it's really a big part of my life. So can, can I ask you, um, so it seems it, you were immersed within your family, right? With, mm-hmm. with being Chickasaw and so much in education, we talk about things like culturally responsive teaching or culturally sustaining pedagogies, these things like that. Right. And I'm already hearing that that seems like an important part in your life, right? Like I think language, like sustaining language is, seems very important. And by the way, when I showed up to the vaccine site, right, the greeter, the first person who greeted me, greets me and che- greeted me in Chickasaw. Right. Which it just makes you really feel like you're, you know, you're in the nation. Um, and I really appreciate it. I had a great conversation. He actually had lived in Texas and then had moved back to be closer to the nation. And so did, did any of that happen in school? At, did, I mean, did you get some of these like culturally sustaining pedagogies in school being, you know, in, in the headquarters of the Chickasaw nation, or was it all coming from your family? You know, that's actually a large part of the reason why I went into education was because I didn't see people like me represented in textbooks or in lessons. And I kind of felt like an outcast growing up. And I mean, I didn't at home because, you know, that's what we did. But at school, it was like, you know, we don't talk about it. They're just here. You know, if you want to know more, you can ask somebody else. And so it was kind of odd growing up in an area where the culture is so prominent and the impact of the Chickasaw Nation is everywhere in Ada. Like you said, they sponsor a lot of things. They support a lot of companies here and they have a lot of their own things as well. So it was, it was odd not to see myself represented. And for me, like I said, that's a lot of the reason why I wanted to get into education because one, I didn't have teachers that looked like me. And I didn't see people like me represented in instruction. I, that, that was my experience growing up as, you know, a, a white, you know, settler in Oklahoma. My, my parents, I don't have a long Oklahoma history. My parents moved when, when they were older. So we were like the first ones to grow up there. And I, I went to Cherokee Elementary in Tahlequah um, before I transferred. I, tra- I was there for kindergarten and transition. Uh, which they, everyone like went to transition at that, at my elementary. And then we moved to Tulsa and there wasn't the same focus, right? There was growing up in the Cherokee, you know, nation headquarters and capital was different, but throughout my K-12 education, I feel like there was this kind of really thin focus on native cultures, but it also felt very distant and past, right? Like it didn't feel current, which is we've had like Sarah Shearer that talked a lot about that. There's not a lot of post 1900 indigenous history. It's a lot of it's like white people went to, you know, fight indigenous you know, nations. Of course, the trail of tears uh, is emphasized a lot, but there's not a lot like, well, what happened next that, that I noticed in, in Oklahoma. So when I taught we Sarah Shear, actually, who's an, who's a scholar who, who studies in indigenous studies we've had on this podcast before, she actually came with me to Oklahoma and we went to my old high school and we actually visited. And when I came in back as an outsider, it was just jarring 
to see like the the lack of kind of I think just overall understanding from most people about like how to teach about indigenous nations. And so I think there's a lot of work to be done. So we really need people like you to do it. So what are, what are some of the issues or advice or things you're thinking about as you think about we can do how we can do a better job of, of teaching about different indigenous nations and then indigeneity, you know, um, more generally in schools? So for me, my experience in the classroom was sort of the thing that made me realize this is something that we're lacking in, especially in the state of Oklahoma, where you have so much, you know, Native American history. But I noticed my kids, my students, a lot of them didn't know their background. And that kind of stunned me because, you know, as a child, I was that one who I was going to stop dances and I was going to church and I sung the Choctaw hymns and we talked in Chickasaw, you know, so it was like, I knew no different. That was, that's who I was. But for my students, you know, they had no clue. They knew, oh, well, I'm Seminole, but I don't really know anything about it. So I first saw a big need just to show these kids, you know, like you have a background and you should know about it. But the other thing is I've actually delved into the Oklahoma standards and looked at those and they're pretty broad. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of it's open for interpretation and they don't specifically talk about a lot of the tribes that are located within Oklahoma. And for me, that was a big area that I was just like, why are we not talking about this? I actually went through all of them, the social study standards, specifically the Oklahoma history ones. And it talks about, you know, like the Osage tribes, Navajo tribes, Western tribes, and that's great. But what about Chickasaw, Cherokee, Choctaw, Seminole Creek, Muskogee? I mean, you have these kids that are right here that need to hear that, and we're not talking about it. So, Michael, you, you probably know where I'm going with this, but I think there's a real social studies of the Chickasaw Nation that could be examined and that. This is a concept that I, I always come back to a way of thinking about that, that if we think about, you know, the Chickasaw Nation history, if we think about Chickasaw Nation um, civics, right, like the tribal governments, which sometimes students don't learn about at all in schools, right? If we think about Chickasaw Nation economics, which is like the Chickasaw Nation is, is in, has such a broad business plan, clearly, in, in a lot of their, you know, efforts in Oklahoma, and if you think about the Chickasaw Nation geography, right, um, both from the original homelands in, in the southeastern United States to Indian Territory and what became Oklahoma, there's a lot of content to really dig into. And that and, uh, and getting into all the detail um, probably brings out a lot of issues like understanding language, understanding culture, understanding the political fights that have happened over time. So what, what are some of the maybe social studies concepts issues, topics that you think were really important that you learned or you think that students could learn in schools? I actually reached out to members of the Chickasaw Nation through the Facebook page and I asked them this specific question because I wanted to know what are things that are relevant to you as tribal members in 2021. And a lot of the answers I got were like the Battle of Akia. You don't see that in you know, the state standards, but it's one of the 
it's after the first encounter with DeSoto. So it's when we um, faced off with the French in 1736. And so that was a big, you know, battle that was missing for a lot of Chickasaw people that they said, you know, it's not in there. It's not being talked about. We need to talk about it. Another big one that I found, and this was really, really neat to me, was the Hopewell Treaty. And this was signed in 1786. And this was the first treaty that the Chickasaws signed with the American government. And basically, this was with, you know, George Washington. And they had a really good relationship, actually. Um, I was surprised to figure out that George Washington was very much in support of Native American tribes. And somewhere, you know, we kind of got off of that line, but it did start out as a good relationship with the American people. Well, it's, mm-hmm. it's in the constitution too, right? I mean, the U S yeah. a lot of people don't really, the U S constitution explicitly now talks about indigenous nations as nations, right. To make treaties with just like other nations. And so initially, yeah, I mean, that, that's that legal setting is there, which is by the way, a lot of the setting for a lot of the cases that are even coming up today, because all, all of the treaties were supposed to be maintained, right. And sustained. Absolutely. And, you know, kind of looking at stuff, it, it, in a whole, it kind of seems like everything was just kind of dissolved prior to a certain time period. But a big one for a lot of people that I reached out to was the land run. In Oklahoma, that is, you know, something that's taught to our younger children. I actually have a really kind of a bad experience with that as a kid in public school. And if I could change one thing, it would definitely be how that is portrayed in public school system. Can you talk a little bit about what the land run is and what your experience was learning about it? Yeah. So the land run was, so at the time, Chickasaws and Choctaws were settled into what is known as the Indian Territory in the state state of what we now know as Oklahoma. Um, Back then it was just Indian territory, but there was quote unquote unassigned land. And what we call boomers and Sooners were people who were allowed to go out and basically claim 160 acres of this unassigned land, which like I said, quote unquote, unassigned, technically is still part of Indian territory, but was just taken. Right. It's like it always allowed the fact that there was this unassigned land to me, and I have a, I have more history to learn, but it always felt like that's rather convenient, right? Because you had basically these white boomers, largely in Kansas, who were just saying, well, why can't we have that unassigned land? And just constantly pressuring the government for it. Also depicted in Far and Away, the movie, if anyone's seen the movie Far and Away, with um, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman that came out that basically the end of that movie is kind of, you know, the, those land runs, which you don't get any of that sense that it's the stealing the land. And by the way, the Sooners are the ones who went early. They cheated during the land run. And that's what OU that's fans. That's school is. <laughs> yeah, that's what OU fans. That's the state. The state is the literally the Sooner state, right? So it's the people who cheated in the land runs that took quote unquote and dead unassigned lands, but Indian, you know, Indian territory, indigenous lands, his, historically, 
And that's what OU fans chant at games. And I'm, I went to the University of Oklahoma, but years ago, I kind of just quit saying it, right? I just say, go OU or something, because it just feels like chants for white people to take indigenous land. Like, I can't get over that fact. So I kind of have, have quit saying it. On the land run, you know, I was looking up some information about it. And from our representatives, people from the Chickasaw Nation, it was said that this was basically a way to go ahead and take the land and say, okay, well, we have, they have less and less land, so let's keep it going. So instead of having to do treaties where they said, okay, this is your land, this is this, they did this to take away the land specifically so that there wasn't any Indian territory left, which actually, once they did this, this became Oklahoma territory and then became the statehood Oklahoma. So that's kind of how, you know, Oklahoma got started. Yeah. And it's just every, the, the kind of settler narrative is just baked into every part of Oklahoma. They even did Michael, like a fake marriage when the state was started where it was like cowboy, I think, and like Mm -hmm. a quote unquote Indian, but I think it was a white person who dressed up as an Indian. If I remember right. We did that in elementary school. Oh, you did it in elementary school. I remember that being a scene that two people acted out and there are actually pictures of it. But I do remember watching my classmates do that in school. And so these these elementary land runs are literally kids reenacting it. They go and do the land run outside and they reenact the land run and they dress up and they wear like cowboy outfits and go and take plots of land. And I did it, too, in elementary. And it's like it's like you're reenacting an invasion. Right. It's like what it in retrospect, what it feels like. But you don't know better as a, a kid. And so. Um, you see how this is, I mean, it's not just that in, you know, Chickasaw Nation history isn't taught. It's that white history and white's perspective and narrative is just baked into the curriculum in, into, you know, the, the myths that people tell about Oklahoma and have continued to this day. Is this at all related to the uh, recent Supreme Court case, McGirt versus Oklahoma? Yes. So recently it came out that Oklahoma was all Indian territory. And a lot of these cases that happened on tribal land were thrown out. And currently they're awaiting, I mean, I don't know how many cases are waiting to be retried because this has all changed. Now I know that they are going back and trying to get some better defined lines between the tribal entities and the government, state government, you know, what what they can and can't do and those types of things. So if you want to learn uh, more about the McGirt case, Michael, I, I highly recommend the This Land podcast. It's hosted by Rebecca Nagel, who is a Cherokee Nation citizen and li- is, lives in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, which is where I'm originally from. And yeah, I mean, so the case to me is like it's there's two big things right like the historical implications are something that we talk about but we need to get into specifics with which are broken treaties right treaties that the u.s government or the states basically just violated and so this case is just recognizing that these states just ignored treaties that existed and that a lot of this land was never disestablished from indigenous nations and particularly in oklahoma and so i think the case was was the creek nation but it's now impacting all of the five nations that historically, uh, you know, were forced into the Trail of Tears. And, and so, but also now, so a lot of those cases that were tried 
are being redone, you're saying right now, right? And I know that the governor at the time is like using that as a scare tactic to try to use that politically to get people to change stuff. But the nations are working to retry a lot of these cases that were thrown out. It's not like everyone's in injustice is just going to, you know, pervade Oklahoma now. And so, yeah. And so you see how, how important history is, right? And how important it is. Cause if you understand, I'm guessing the Chickasaw nation history better, this case would make more sense and, and kind of help you um, to teach students and understand issues like tribal sovereignty and, you know, and understand the, the nation as it exists today. And a lot of important things that should be part of an indigenous studies curriculum. It would seem that the game that it seems like kids learn about the sooner running to, to grab a, to grab a piece of land. It seemed like they would benefit from also listening to that podcast and learning more about this case. How, how else would you recommend that, for example, people learn about important issues to the Chickasaw nation from, from tribal government issues to history, to language and things like that? What are some ways people can become better informed about the Chickasaw nation and Chickasaw people? Well, I mean, I can't say enough about my tribe. They've done a tremendous job on preserving our culture and our history. Here recently, they have worked with Rosetta Stone to actually capture our language on an online base. So everybody that is open to everyone to go and learn the Chickasaw language through Rosetta Stone. They have a TV channel, or I guess it's more of a website, but it's called Chickasaw TV. So many videos on historical events, culture, cultural aspects such as beating, stop dancing, stickball, those types of things, profiles of important Chickasaw figures are, you know, filmed on that. But there's just so much that the tribe has done to preserve that. And, you know, that makes me really proud that we do have the ability to put out those resources. But I think specifically those types of things, you know, the Rosetta Stone, Chickasaw TV, Chickasaw.net, there are so many resources. Yeah, I think a lot of teachers sometimes don't know where to start, right? And I think to me, what I've learned, because there's there's an, I sometimes like a almost a sense, and I've seen this from some of the indigenous scholars in social studies, right, that everyone goes to them and tells, tell me what to do when like a lot of the nations have put a lot of great resources online, right? And so the first thing to do is seek out those resources. You don't have to have, although it'd be great, like if you have, uh, know someone from Chickasaw Nation, right? Who wants to visit your classroom and talk about things. That's of course always incredible. But yeah, chickasaw.net is, it seems like a great place to start. And when I do activities in my elementary classrooms and we want to learn about the nations, I usually, my first advice is go to their websites, and look at how they write their own histories, right? And how do they, and I, we always ask, like, how do you, they want their histories told? And so that's usually a starting point. And that's kind of in my, a lot of my elementary lessons. And I found that works a lot better than the textbooks sometimes. So that, thank you for those resources. And maybe you could even tell us a couple of your, your favorite Chickasaw TV videos, and we could highlight those. If people want to start learning, we could add those to the, to the show notes. Yeah, my my dad's in a few of them. So, <laughs> oh, he is. Well, we have to include those. Yeah, so he got to reenact some very important figures like Douglas Johnson. That one was really awesome. But we we always um, kind of make fun of him for like there's Douglas Douglas Johnson. So it's pretty neat to see them in there. But Wait, another just... big um, place that we have is the Chickasaw Cultural Center in Sulphur, Oklahoma. So for Oklahoma teachers, my mom through the Chickasaw Foundation Foundation also sponsors field trip and that's everything so so educators in Oklahoma have the ability to apply for this scholarship and take their students 
to the Chickasaw Nation Cultural Center. And this is actually a life-size version of what the community would have been like in our homelands. Um, my sister and my brother-in-law worked there and they actually dress in official regalia every day. And they do um, performances of the stomp dances. My sister weaves and um, beads and things like that. And my brother-in-law, he leads the dances. So it's really neat to see them still carrying that on. It is really cool. And it's really cool to see how, um, how many, you know, I feel like every time we talk, you tell me new things your family's doing in the Chickasaw Nation. That, yeah. That's, that's really, really cool. And, and so, um, and I've been to the Chickasaw Cultural Center. It's, it's you kind of, if you ever drive on I-35 between Dallas and Oklahoma City, you can jump off the highway and go visit it. And I've done so. And it's, it's a really well done, like everything the Chickasaw Nation does. And so do you have any advice for, for educators besides, I mean, we've, we've given a lot of resources and things, any other advice for educators who are trying to do a better job of, you know, on, on many levels of supporting their fellow indigenous uh, um, educators of supporting indigenous people in their communities and of teaching these, you know, histories and, and culture and political issues better. I think first thing is to identify the cultures in your classroom seek those out specifically. Um, you know, I had a lot of students who were Seminole or Creek or Potawatomi. So I specifically talked about those tribes and their involvement in the culture. And then the other thing is to create authentic experiences in the classroom. And that's a really big one. Connect to those cultures, bring in community members, bring in artifacts. It's, it's more than just, you know, getting a textbook and reading from it, you know, give them hands-on experiences, show them. I mean, we have YouTube, we have all kinds of resources now. So get online and find those real life experiences that these kids will enjoy and retain. I love that. Thank you. I mean, and, and I think that, um, yeah, that, those are ideas that can prove that can apply. And I love of understanding because I wonder how many indigenous students go through school without their nation ever really recognized in the curriculum. And I know when I've, for example, uh, I, I had a unit on Asian American history, you know, a semester ago. Um, and one of my students is just like, thank you. I'm like in college and no, I've never gotten to learn Asian American history any in any class. And so it always means a lot, I think, for, for people to see themselves represented, but also to address the important issues that we're still facing today, right? There's a lot of important political issues that na nations like Chickasaw Nation are addressing, uh, a lot of injustices that still need to be undone that I think educators can participate in. And one piece of advice I learned, too, is just to, if you, if you want to develop relationship with nations, they need to be, you know, mutually beneficial, right? Not just taking, not just telling me about your culture, but what can we do to support and have a good beneficial relationship? So that's something that's not been a part of United States history always. Absolutely. I agree with that. And I think the Chickasaw Nation does a really good job with that. Like we are tied to our community all over Oklahoma in various ways. And Governor Anatubby, you know, he's such a, a great leader for us that we have a lot of those relationships and networking areas with many people all over the state of Oklahoma. Alexis, before we before we sign off, can you just tell us? So your dad played Douglas Johnson in in one of this in one of the videos. Do you mind telling us who Douglas Johnson is? I was very, yeah, I really want to know. <laughs> yeah, so Douglas Johnson 
was a governor of the Chickasaw Nation. And he was the very first governor to be appointed by the president of the United States. Oh, interesting. There you go. And I'm sure there's a lot more to that story, which your dad will teach us when we watch, <laughs> when we watch the video. Yeah. Of course, that, that's going to be the one of the ones in the show notes. It's, it's really awesome. Yeah, it's, it's great. He's a, got a big mustache. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Alexis Walker, for joining us today. We do appreciate the fact that you're able to share so much. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. And just thank you for the opportunity to represent my tribe and to talk about my people. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much for joining us today. We certainly do hope to continue talking about the Chickasaw Nation and learning. And we're going to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. Right, Michael? Absolutely. Now, at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing the learning. And if you're doing something fun or creative in education or you just want to chat, then we get it. We're there, just waiting for you right here, whatever it takes, or how my heart aches. We'll be here waiting for you at Visions of Ed on Twitter. We're also sometimes on Facebook. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Education Podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, <laughs> Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And you don't want to cause us any more heartaches. So give us that five-star review. It helps people That's find this podcast. It, is it okay there whatever it takes yeah it's like uh <laughs> whatever it takes whatever we do I check will. the end of the podcast we'll keep we'll do some karaoke time uh we'd like to thank <laughs> zach seitz of wiley high school in the university of north texas for editing this episode you can find me on twitter i'm at dan kretka and i'm at 42 thank you until next time this is the visions of education podcast 